0: Before we begin this week's episode, here are a few words from this week's sponsors of the show, and we begin with a warning. When you think you're safe, you're not. When you think the past is over, it isn't. When you think you know someone, you don't. When you think you've guessed this twist, you haven't. Interested? Well this week the show is sponsored by Crosser Heart, the addictive new thriller from Sunday Times number one bestselling author, Sarah Pinborough. Which is out now and available in paperback, ebook, and audio form from HarperCollins Publishers. Crosser Heart is described by Stylist magazine as a pacey, twisty thriller that will hook you within its first few pages, and it draws such praise from established figures in the genre like B. A. Paris, the author of Behind Closed Doors, who described Crosser Heart as brilliantly clever and compelling. I loved it. I don't want to give too much away, but Cross a Heart is a tale that concerns three interesting women, several nasty men, and a single moment that will change the lives of all three of the women forever. To quote the Times, to say more would reveal a powerful plot, and this is one book that when you start reading it, it will keep you up turning the pages all night trying to guess the twist in the tale. Cross a Heart is out now from all online and high street booksellers in paperback, ebook and audio form. Read it and see if you can guess the twist in the tale. But be warned though, this book is one that will keep you up all night. Hello all and welcome from a currently glorious North Wales where spring has proper hit hard to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast where I'm back after my week's break. I'm all caught up with myself and everything else and I hope that you guys are all good and well as this episode finds you. It's fantastic to have you all here as ever. Now well into the latter half of the third series of the show and I'm back with a sole True Crime Enthusiast episode after the recent second collaboration with Jess Carter at Outlines. Now, I enjoyed very much working with Jess once again last episode, and what a case it was to cover, the Tattingstone suitcase murder. You guys seem to mostly enjoy it as well, based on the feedback that I've received, which is always helpful and worthwhile, so thanks very much all, and look out for me and Jess collaborating again in the near future. We've narrowed down a geographical area I think, but we haven't chosen a case yet. Big thanks as ever to everyone joining me here today, new and old friends alike. It means the world just as much each and every single week, with the shares, the reviews, the kind support and the feedback. It really all does help make the show. I am playing catch-up a bit with name-checking the latest show Patreon supporters as well, so bear with me now. Thanks very much. Must go to Bundle Good Egg, Abby Hate, Claire Ritchie, Natalie Mills, KJ Malone, Carol Owen, old friends of the show Bonnie Lee, Sarah Maloney, Joe McLeod, Joseph Roman, Lynn Burnett, Wayne Illness, Maria Cuccio, and Marie Paris, who has amended her patronage. Time may go by, but I do always get to thank everybody, and I hope that I haven't mispronounced anyone's names there. If I have, then deepest apologies. It's absolutely brilliant and it's so appreciated for you all to support and I hope that you've enjoyed the bonus episodes that are available for supporters. Bonus episode number 14 drops tomorrow actually, on the 1st of March. For anyone interested in joining these guys as a show Patreon supporter, bonus episodes such as The Lincoln Axe Murders, The Angel From Hell, and The Ambleside Red Scarf Murder can be yours to hear for a very reasonable contribution each month, probably less than you've lost down the back of your sofa. Links to the show's Patreon page can easily be found by searching out the show name on there, All links are, of course, with my show notes for the episode, alongside the contact and social media details for the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. And as I started doing again a couple of weeks ago, I'm back hosting promos for other shows here on my own show now. It's always good to share these, I think, and I'm privileged enough this week to have two from a couple of my favourite shows that I never miss an episode of. But don't take my word for it. Here are Bob and Nadine from Twisted Britain and Caprice from the Unseen Podcast to tell you what they're all about. So it's over to those guys. Hello, and let me tell you about Twisted Britain, a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. Your hosts are me, Bob Dale, and me, Nadine Royal. We're a couple of friends who met in the pub and we developed a friendship based on our mutual love of booze, podcasts, and pub quizzes. We met in the Settling in Stirling, and that's where we record. Each week, we both tell a story of something twisted. One long one and one short one, and we decide who goes first. Based on the flip of a coin. So if that sounds like something that would tickle your fancy, you can always find us wherever you normally find your podcasts. Just search for Twisted Britain. Thanks. Bye. At the Unseen Podcast, we look at cases of missing people, unresolved investigations, and above all, we focus on UK true crime. So if you want to listen to UK cases and care about little known stories that might have been forgotten about, then we are the podcast for you. Join me, Caprice, every Sunday as we delve into these stories. You can find The Unseen Podcast anywhere you are currently listening and I hope you can join me in discussing forgotten and unresolved cases. thanks very much for that folks i highly recommend both shows they're truly ace and they're well worth checking out they're available on all good podcast platforms pretty much wherever you get your shows from head over and have a listen for yourselves and maybe leave them some love and a bit of a nice review as well because that's always appreciated The hosts are also active over their respective show social media where they always welcome any interaction from listeners and they can be found by looking up either show title with the links to each being slap bang in my own episode show notes this week. So after my week off, which really wasn't a week off by the way, I should explain that February is birthday month in the true crime enthusiast world. It's mine, it's my mum's, it's my dad's, so it involved a lot of running round and all sorts of stuff and I properly haven't had time to bash out an episode that I would be happy releasing. It would have been just a filler one and worked too hard on the show to be happy to do that, so I'm not going to but this week I am back with a case to recount. The case this week was a bit of a one to research due to the relatively little information available about it, but this never daunts me if it's a tale that deserves telling, and this is one that's long been planned as an episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I think it's surprising really that it isn't more infamous than it is because the crime is despicable and it shows the depths that an individual will sink to for their own gratification, to wreak revenge and hurt someone and to save their own skin. It goes back to the Forest Gate area of East London in the summer of 1985 and as ever on the show, this week's episode contains descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting including descriptions of sexual offences and descriptions of a crime involving a minor, so please use your own discretion. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at a case simply entitled Kaylee's Story. On the 30th of October 1986, a television programme called Child Watch was screened by the BBC. Now I know what you're thinking from the off there. Yes, they are still that, of course, but there's no mention of my beloved Crime Watch this week in the show. The Child Watch programme shown that evening concerned the highlighting of child abuse and was aimed at trying to detect children who were at risk before their lives became endangered. During the programme, a telephone helpline was launched so that any child who was suffering abuse could anonymously call someone for help or advice or even just to talk to someone about what was happening to them at home, and it was absolutely inundated with calls. Recognising the permanent need for such a service, the helpline has ever since that day stayed open and became ChildLine. UK listeners, I'm sure, will be able to remember and recognise the contact number for it without me even saying it here on the show, it's that well known. Although I shall, of course, place a link to the charity in the show notes so you can all have a read and see what it's about. Since the date was formed in 1986, Childline has helped and provided a confidential advice and listening service for millions of children and given too many to count a way out of both physical and sexual abuse that they may be suffering. Coincidentally on the very same day Childline was created the 30th of October 1986 and just across the city of London from BBC Television Centre in court number 1 of the Old Bailey Mr Justice Turner had just imposed the mandatory life sentence on a monstrously evil killer for a horrific crime committed against a 14-year-old girl a 14-year-old girl who perhaps had it come sooner Childline may have been able to help and who may now still be alive, and have gone on to have children of her own. On the face of things, the disappearance of pretty blonde 14-year-old schoolgirl, Keely Barton, one August Saturday morning in 1985, from the Forest Gate District of East London, could easily enough just be written off as being another simple case of a teenage runaway. Many police officers quite possibly would have just had a cursory look at the missing person's report and then passed it along to a different department, their attention being drawn by other more pressing matters such as the definite crimes and incidents that happen each day for police to deal with. They knew that in East London alone, teenage girls ran away from home on an almost daily basis. More often than not, they'd be back hours later, the tail between the legs, or when any row that had caused them to leave had been forgotten replaced by the relief that a missing child is home safely. Usually you'd find they'd been off with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or a newer group of friends, and those who were missing for more than a night usually came back the day after, or a few days later tops, and they rarely came to any harm. Rarely, but occasionally. Detective Inspector Norman McNamara sat looking at the missing person report that had come across his desk at Forest Police Station on the 11th of August 1985, and something about it made him feel distinctly uneasy. There was just something about this one, something different. Usually when young girls run away from home, they take with them the smartest clothes, money, makeup, or treasured mementos and precious keepsakes. Today of course it will be all of these, but Primarily, they'll take their phone with them, won't they? Keely had not taken one single item that belonged to her no money, no possessions, nothing except the clothes that she wore. And there was something even more u- unusual about this disappearance, something that pointed more to it being an abduction than a voluntary disappearance. Keely had vanished early that August morning while walking her pet dog, a German shepherd named Rex. She was described as being inseparable from. She'd set off that morning, a warm yet drizzly one, from the family home in Seabert Road in Forest Gate to walk Rex the short distance to Wanstead Flats, which was and is a large expanse of common land quite near to the area. It was at the time and still is a popular recreation area boasting a boating lake, several football pitches and an area for model airplane enthusiasts or drone flyers as it probably is nowadays. Keeley would walk Rexie every single day and the two knew the area well, they were familiar figures amongst the joggers, the horse riders and the fellow other fellow dog walkers who also enjoyed walking on Wanstead Flats. But as with the majority of places such as this, the area also had a bad reputation. It's been the haunt of several flashers, watchers and other general weirdos and Keeley's mother, Theresia, had issued a strict instruction that she was never to go there without Rex. Now, a fierce-looking German Shepherd dog is a very, very good deterrent. Many years ago, I knew a dog handler who had one called Jedi, which is a fantastic name for a fierce dog, that, ain't it, And it was the most fearsome dog that you could ever imagine, this one. You'd proper run a mile if it snarled. And it would proper be able to catch you as well, believe me. And this guy I knew, he could do absolutely anything with it. He could pull its ears, wrestle with it, and it loved him to bits. It adored him. But with anyone else, well, once it chewed through several doors in the space of just a couple of hours. That's the kind of dog we're talking about here. So therefore, you'd think just the appearance of a fierce looking German shepherd like Rex would be enough to put off any Mac wearing oddball or worse, you'd think, wouldn't you? So when Rex came back alone to the Barton family house on Seabert Road about an hour and a half after he and Kayleigh had set out Theresia Barton immediately sensed that something was wrong. The dog hadn't just run on home ahead of Keeley who who there was no sign of at all no, all of the signs were that Rex had suffered some sort of trauma. He didn't appear to have any physical wounds and he wasn't injured in any way but he'd headed straight for the sanctuary of his bed when he'd gotten into the house. The fact that his hackles were up, his normally alert ears were pressed flat against his head, and his tail was between his legs, was enough to alarm Theresia that something had happened, thinking that perhaps Keeley may have had an accident and was laying hurt somewhere. But when no one came in, moments behind the dog, to confirm this and say, oh, Keeley's been hurt or anything, Theresia was soon to report Keely as a missing person. Keely didn't have a boyfriend, so there wasn't one of those to have fought with or gallivanted off with. She had lots of friends, she got on well with her mother and two younger half-brothers, and their father and Keely's stepfather, Ronald Barton, who'd been in her life since she was five months old, and who had raised her as though she were his own daughter. She seemed to have had no reason to run away, and indeed, she'd made much of planning to head into town later that Saturday afternoon, to buy her younger brother a birthday present? Plus, would she really have abandoned her beloved Rex? Why even take the dog out if she wasn't planning to come back? It was details such as these that made police alarm bells ring also, so Detective Inspector McNamara had no qualms and launched an inquiry into what he suspected was a bit more sinister than a headstrong teenage girl just going off somewhere. Whilst a huge police search of the Wanstead Flats area got underway. So did the other part of the initial investigation, which is a standard to look into the life, the background and the family of the person at the centre of such an inquiry. More often than not, this is where leads spring from. There might be a pastime or interest, a group of friends or an argument with someone that may all provide a crucial key to a successful and happy resolution to such an investigation. But when Detective Inspector McNamara began to look into Keeley's background and the people closest to her, it soon became apparent that over a short 14 years, her life had been anything but idyllic, and the alarm bells really began to ring. Keely Theresia Best, yes, Theresia, I haven't said that wrong, she had the middle name the same as her mother's came into the world in Homerton University Hospital in the London Borough of Hackney on the 9th of March 1971. There's little record of Keeley's biological father available through research, though I'm led to believe his name was or is Keith, and as her 22-year-old mother's surname was Van der Have, she does seem to have had his surname placed on her birth certificate. Keely's mother and father were unmarried and they'd split up either just before she was born or only just after she was and when Keely was just a few weeks old her mother had gone back to bar work in an East London pub to earn money for her and her baby daughter. Also by that time the attractive blonde who Keely was to take after in looks in later life had a new relationship this time with a 31 year old minicab driver named Ronald Barton By the time Keeley was five months old, she and her mother had moved in with Ronnie, as he liked to be called, to a house in Seabert Road in East London's Forest Gate District. In 1974, Teresia and Ronnie had married, Keeley had taken his stepfather's surname, and for a few years, things went well, well enough for the Bartons to welcome two sons into the household in successive years. But what Keeley's mother could not have known... What she had no idea of when she first met Ronald William Barton was that he was a man with a past, the kind of past that would ensure that you wouldn't wish to be anywhere even near him, let alone have a relationship with and ultimately marry. By 1970, the year before Theresia had met Barton, he'd already amassed a lengthy police record predominantly of sexual offences and had no less than five separate periods of imprisonment under his belt. His criminal career had begun when Barton was just 19, and the full list, which I shall reproduce in a second, gives you a kind of an idea about the type of stepdad that we're talking about. 1959, unlawful sex with a girl aged 14, absolute discharge. 1961, indecent assault on a girl aged 15, conditional discharge. 1962, indecent assault on a girl aged 16, 6 months imprisonment. 1963, indecent assault on a girl aged 16, 1 year's imprisonment. 1965, grievous bodily harm to a female, 9 months imprisonment. 1966, assault with intent to rob, 18 months imprisonment. 1968, indecent assault on a girl there's no record of that one, 1970, indecent assault on a girl aged 15, 21 months imprisonment. It cannot be known exactly when Barton first turned his depraved intentions towards Keeley and began to interfere with her sexually, but the first time that authorities came into the frame over it when it was reported to them was early in 1980, when Keeley was just eight years old. Both Keeley and her mother Theresia gave evidence against Barton, and yet, with a past record such as his that he'd already amassed, he was given just a one year suspended sentence for acts of gross indecency on Keeley. Good to see the courts worked as well as ever back then, isn't it? Barton was later to claim that he'd sought medical advice about his problem, as he preferred to class it, after this incident. But if he did so, and there's no record available through research of him ever having officially done so, then it had little effect. You have to wonder why Theresia Barton, who by now must have been fully aware of the extent of Barton's past crimes and his tendencies, shall we say, continued to live with him and put her daughter and herself to the very real, almost inevitable risks of it happening again. Well quite simply, it was through fear. Ronald Barton was a violent, aggressive and domineering man who thought nothing of keeping his family in a constant state of fear for their well-being with threats of injury and acts of violence towards them. Indeed, he seemed to positively enjoy it. It mirrored his own upbringing in 1940s Hackney. Theresia Barton was later to state that on a number of occasions, both she and Keeley were forced, at a rifle place to their heads no less to perform disgusting sexual acts upon Barton, which I'm sure I don't really need to spell out. I know you must be thinking, why on earth does anyone stay in such a hellhole with such a monster? But as we've come across more than once on the show, sometimes people don't think that they have anywhere to go or turn to, and they don't have the grit it must take to flee with three small children. They absolutely fear for their lives and the lives of their children, It must have taken unbelievable courage for Theresia to inform authorities of Barton's behaviour, only to then live in paralysing fear of him and be forced to continue to live with him. That must have been unimaginable. And the same thing happened once again in 1982, although at the last minute the now 11 year old Keeley was terrified again at gunpoint into not testifying against Barton. She refused to on the day of the hearing and the case was dropped, although this time it did alert Hackney authorities enough to place Keeley into care in a council hostel. The hostel couldn't have been much better, perhaps even something equally as awful as the horror that she'd been placed there to escape from had happened even here. A very real supposition based on the many allegations of past abuse at such places that are now widespread, but Keeley hated it there at the home, and desperately unhappy, she would often abscond back to her mother's house, who because she loved so much, she was desperately worried about. But this also meant heading back to Ronald Barton and his inevitable sexual abuse. By the time 1984 had rolled around, and Barton had once again sexually interfered with Keeley, Theresia finally decided that that was it, and drastic measures needed to be taken. But this time she tried a different tack. A court order was obtained which banned Barton from going within a quarter of a mile of the family home at Seabert Road. To ensure that he complied with this, and to stand fast over his threats of coercion, both Theresia and Keeley together held the threat over his head, that if he didn't leave them be and he caused any more trouble for the family, then they'd have no hesitation, and this time both Theresia and Keeley would testifying court as to his disgusting indecent assaults upon the young girl regardless of any threats or violence to persuade them not to now this was a considerable threat to make to barton and indeed one that he took very seriously because he knew up to then that he'd had a charmed time but a third accusation and a testimony from his wife and stepdaughter would mean porridge for him He'd been in the nick many times before and he knew the kind of treatment that a sex offender faces so he wasn't too anxious to get ground glass or urine or faeces in his food, hatred and abuse and the constant threat of getting such a hiding from the other crims that Barton's brother would feel it. Therefore he grudgingly complied with the court order and the threat from his wife and stepdaughter and was forced to take lodgings, a CD flat in the Mildenhall Road area of Clapton which is about 6 miles from Forest Gate Meanwhile, Theresia Barton began seeing other men at first a man named Christos and then a new relationship this time with a man named Eric Cross who before long became a regular face at the Barton household in Siebert Road Keely, meanwhile, perhaps because of such an up and down home life to that point, and perhaps to allow her mother time to adjust to being a single parent, was placed for a while back into the care system, staying at the same council hostel. Barton wasn't restrained from going here, and he was to visit Keely on multiple occasions, trying to smarm his way around, perhaps even attempting to abuse her again. But each time she stood up to him and reiterated the threat, he was to leave her, mother and their family alone for good and give up the idea of the Barton family being a unit again or he was going to prison for a long stretch now as we've said Barton took this seriously and at first this seemed to be a workable solution to the years of abuse and misery that had gone on at Seabert Road at least it was for Keeley and Theresia But this didn't take into account the bruising to Barton's massive ego that he'd suffered as the result of his family standing up to him. He felt a bitter seething resentment at the way he'd been dismissed from the family home where he ruled the roost, as well as the separation from his two biological sons, who by all accounts he was never violent towards. It was totally alien to someone used to being in control and getting his own way. And you have to think as well that Barton was especially annoyed because now his perverted sexual urges were left frustrated. He had no teenage girl under his control who he could sexually abuse. And his wife, who he dominated throughout their relationship, was moving on and starting to date other men. Barton began stalking and spying on his wife and family, sending them abusive telephone calls and following them around from a distance that was safe to him, still mindful of the court order and the threat that Keeley and Theresia posed him. This only intensified when Barton learned that Theresia had a new relationship, he just got more and more wound up about this as time went on, and the more that he did, the more that a vicious plan for revenge began to form in his mind. In Barton's twisted logic Keeley was the problem here but if Keeley were removed from the scene then not only would the principal witness to his abuse be silenced but at the same time he would be paying back the wife that he now despised for defying him and standing up for herself. It would be the ultimate act of revenge. Forgetting the fact that she was the mother of his own two biological sons Barton chose to ignore that it may not even have occurred to him because his own gratification came first you just can't understand the mindset of something like that that's pure hatred indeed isn't it by the beginning of august 1985 barton had been out of the Siebert road household for almost a year but he'd still continued harassing his estranged wife with telephone calls and threats throughout the entire time Keely had also by this time run away from the care home that she'd been back into to and had returned to live on a permanent basis with her mother, her two brothers and her mother's new boyfriend Eric who was also by now a semi-permanent fixture in the house. Barton, still wound up like a top about this, had gotten bolder in his harassment by then as well. Unemployed at the time, he started going up to near the house and hanging around spying on the Barton family and occasionally turning up at the doorstep to threaten them the 5th of august 1985 was one such night barton had confronted his wife on the doorstep over a new relationship warning her that he had a gun and assuring her that he wasn't afraid to use it he told her that he was taking somebody with him if he ever had cause to use it and that if she ever dared testify against him he would place her 10 feet under being the coward that he was Barton fled before police could be called, but he had succeeded in putting the fear there. He sounds delightful, this fella, doesn't he? Have a look at his picture on the show's Instagram page following the episode. He looks like a BG that's been through a car wash, a proper drip, an absolute scumbag. Four nights later, late on Friday the 9th of August, Barton was once again spying on his estranged family this time brave enough to break the restraining order and creep into the back garden of the Barton household, watching Theresia, Eric Cross, Barton's two sons and Keeley, as they sat on the three-piece suite in the living room watching television. Through the open chink in the drawn curtains, Barton must have seen a rare sight in the home, a happy-looking family scene. The three youngsters sat enjoying some programme on television, Eric sat where Barton himself once would have, holding the hand of Theresia, who sat on the living room floor in front of Eric. You can only imagine that something such as this must have sent someone like Barton into even more of a seething rage. Yet there was no question of him hammering on the door and kicking off, he was much more calculating and cowardly you can argue than that. It's unknown how long he spent watching the scene, but he may have seen the episode when at about 11.30pm that evening, Keely and her mother had an argument about her being allowed to stay up later than usual to watch television. It was something over nothing, but it ended up with Keely running upstairs and locking herself in her bedroom after angry words were spoken between her and Theresia. So it was a row yes, but the kind of arguments that things are said in the heat of the moment and are long forgotten by the following morning. Certainly not cause enough for Keely to run away from home because of, a sentiment that police agreed with the following day when she'd been reported missing. Ronald Barton, being Keeley's stepfather, and in an immediate circle of family members, arguably, albeit estranged too, was one of the first people questioned, and he was immediately suspected of being responsible for his stepdaughter's disappearance. His circumstances gave him the obvious motive, and then of course there was the inescapable criminal record filled with sexual offences the majority involving underage girls when he was questioned about keely's disappearance he denied all knowledge of the matter but he did himself no favors with police by his devil may care attitude towards keely's well-being he seemed as about as bothered about it as i am that ian huntley's okay in prison you know when it was put to barton initially that keely was missing his stepdaughter who that despite the abuse towards whose life he'd been in since 1971, since she was a baby, Barton's response was simply, The little slag probably ran off with a boyfriend because she got pregnant or something. She'll be back when she wants fags. How despicable is that? If Barton had snatched Keeley, then it would explain why a potential attacker had not balked at the form of a menacing looking German Shepherd being with the girl, because Rex would have known Barton and not considered him a threat. Police theorised that only someone who knew Keeley well enough that Rex knew them enough to not consider them a threat could have approached her on Wanstead Flats that Saturday morning. The dog would have undoubtedly done everything to protect his owner from a stranger. On the 17th of August 1985, Ronald Barton was arrested and the interview was handled by D.I. McNamara and the senior officer in charge of Forest Gate CID, Detective Superintendent Charles Farqua. Barton once again denied knowing anything whatsoever about Keeley's disappearance, but by this time, both detectives were convinced that he was lying. Meanwhile a huge search was underway for Keeley and a photograph of the pretty blonde teenager had been circulated by that time to the television and newspapers. Teams of specialist search officers and underwater search teams combed the areas of Wanstead Flats and the neighbouring stretches of Epping Forest. Lakes and ponds were dragged in the area and the entire surrounding land was scoured for visible signs of disturbed earth where it may indicate that a body lay Although it was still in name a missing persons inquiry the hallmarks of Keeley's disappearance plus the fact that she'd taken no possessions or valuables with her and had abandoned her beloved dog Rex meant that privately from very early in the inquiry police were convinced that she'd come to harm. And whilst they had a prime suspect they had no concrete proof that Keeley was actually dead certainly nothing that could warrant charges at the time Whilst it was of course possible to accuse someone of murder without a body, charges were unlikely to be brought based on the suspicions alone that police had at the time. Farquhar and McNamara's instincts told them that Barton had murdered his stepdaughter Keely, most likely having waylaid her that Saturday morning with a sexual motive. Afterwards, he would have had twin motives for murdering her and concealing her body. The first, to stop her going to the police about his latest assault upon her, because this time Barton was undoubtedly going down for hard prison time. He must have known this and couldn't afford her to tell, yet this individual's compulsion to sexually abuse overrode all of this, as though he just couldn't stop himself. The second reason was revenge, pure and simple, revenge. By raping and murdering his own stepdaughter, Barton could devastate Theresia Barton for taking a new lover, because she was out of his control and it was eating him alive. There were no other serious suspects, Barton ticked every single box and detectives were sure that they knew Keeley's killer, but without Keeley's body, police would be struggling to bring a murder charge, so on the 17th of August, Barton was bailed and any plans that police had to bring charges against him were to receive a severe setback, because both he and Theresia Barton were to receive letters, presumably from Keeley, in the days following him being bailed. The letter addressed to Ronald Barton read as follows. Dear Dad, I'm sorry about telling lies when I told Mum about the photos and what I said to police. I can't go on telling lies. I have written to mum telling her how it's all a load of lies and I hope that she'll go and tell the police. I am staying with friends. Don't worry, I'm okay. Keely. The letter that was addressed to Theresia Barton was slightly longer than this and it adopted a more accusatory tone reading as follows. Dear mum, I'm writing to tell you that I'm okay. I can't go on telling you and the police lies about dad the photos I told you about are not true and nothing else is true. I don't like Christos, I think he's a creep. By the time I'm 16 I will have had about 10 dads. I already have Keith, Ron and now Christos. I think you should have said to me first if you wanted to sleep with him. I'd be better off back in care I think. Don't worry mum, I'm alive and well. Keely. Now know how in each letter she claimed that she'd made up any allegations against Barton and that each was a lie. In the letter to her mother, she added further that she thought her mother's former partner was a creep and went on to slam her mother for taking new partners, as though the letters were designed to hurt and scathe her. Now, isn't there a scent of someone incredibly bitter at Theresia Barton in that? What do you think? Now bearing all in mind that had gone on over the years and knowing what Barton had done in the past, can you imagine just how Keeley's mother felt reading that letter? Regardless, the handwriting and signature were confirmed as being Keeley's and forensic experts began to examine the letters and the envelopes that they'd been posted in. Each correspondence had been posted relatively locally in the East London area. Coincidentally, in the days following Barton being bailed, so Keely hadn't gone very far, but had given no explanation in the letters as to where she was, why she'd left, or why it had taken her so long to get in touch. To police investigating her disappearance, it didn't alter their opinion that Keeley was dead, rather, their suspicion now was that Barton had snatched Keeley that Saturday morning, had abducted her and subjected her to whatever purposes his dark mind had, and had only kept her alive long enough to coerce her into writing both letters as he dictated them, to draw suspicion away from himself and to muddy the waters that Keeley had indeed run away somewhere, whilst at the same time inflicting more pain on Theresia Barton by slamming her for her new relationships. Barton was interviewed once again whilst the letters were being examined, and this time during an interview, he told detectives... I know who's got Keeley. If you let me go, I can arrange for her to be set free. Perhaps Barton felt cornered by this. Perhaps his arrogance at thinking he could get away with anything made him do this. I mean, why would he go to the lengths to concoct such an alibi for himself, if you like, only to then firmly place himself back directly in the centre of the investigation by such an admission must be known only to him. He wouldn't expand on this any further but he must have known that there was little chance police would now release him. It was certainly the line of thinking that Detective Superintendent Farquhar took and Ronald Barton was arrested and charged with the abduction of his stepdaughter. It wasn't the murder charge that police wanted but it would suffice until Keeley turned up either alive or sadly dead. Barton appeared at Stratford Magistrates Court on the 20th of August 1985 and made an immediate application to be bailed. This was refused when D.I. McNamara told the court about Barton's claims to know Keely's whereabouts saying he is intimated that he can secure the release of her body or herself if he is allowed bail. Police also considered it highly likely that if for some reason Barton was allowed bail which was already pretty much out of the question for such high profile serious charges then he would take his own life rather than admit what had happened to Keely or where she was. Such was the contempt of this guy that they considered he would have done just that just to inflict the maximum pain he could on Theresia Barton. Detectives leading the investigation wanted to keep the pressure up on him, sure that if they continued on while the prime suspect was tucked away, then he would ultimately fold and come clean about Keeley's fate. They didn't want him to have the chance of escaping justice by taking his own life, and so Barton was kept on permanent suicide watch in Brixton prison where he was being held on remand. With him secured away and watched, now all of the investigators' efforts were doubled in the hunt for Keeley barton was known to have had two blue peugeot 504 estate cars that he'd used for his mini cabin but neither of these vehicles could now be found there was no record of the new registered keeper of either vehicle and as a search of breakers yards in the london and essex areas began a press appeal for information about any sightings of either blue peugeot car registration numbers klt 856p and joo 590N respectively was published this publicity was to switch the search nearly 150 miles away to the county of Wiltshire where a farmer in the Wiltshire village of Newton Tony near Salisbury reported witnessing one of the cars parked in a remote lane bordering his land suspecting poachers he'd made a note of the registration number and a description of the vehicle and following the press release had realised that this was one of the cars that police looking for Keeley were appealing to trace. A mass search was conducted in the area involving cadaver dogs, helicopters employing thermal imaging equipment, and a team of 60 specialist search officers, but no trace of Keeley was found. What this vehicle was doing in the area, if it indeed was one of the cars, has never been confirmed or established. Detectives also carried out a fingertip search of the railway lines leading away from the Forest Gate area, after receiving an anonymous tip-off that Keeley's body was hidden in undergrowth alongside the track, but this again proved to be false, another example of the malicious false reports of information that any high-profile investigations constantly get. It served no purpose other than to prolong and misdirect the search, which was already as intense and widespread as it could be as well as disused docklands, industrial premises and rural areas throughout the area Barton's flat, the homes of several friends of his who lived in areas that encompassed East London, Kent and Sussex and his parents house in Essex were all picked apart thoroughly also when police came to search Barton's parents house his father Henry couldn't hide the contempt that he held for police he told them that in no uncertain terms would he help them but he did add that if something had happened to Keeley, then rest assured it would be his son who was responsible. Lovely close family relationship there, sounds, doesn't it? Whilst the search and investigation were ongoing, and whilst Barton was still ensconced in prison, many people came forward to contact police saying that they'd seen Keeley alive and well. Reports of sightings of high-profile missing persons are always commonplace in any investigation. I mean, there were literally thousands of sightings of Susie Lamplu even for years after her disappearance, and Madeleine McCann has been sighted nearly everywhere from Portugal to bloody Pluto. Sometimes reports such as these are malicious, they're made by people just wanting a bit of attention for themselves, whereas some are genuinely well-meaning, but mistaken. Keely's disappearance was no different and several reports had come in reporting sightings of her from all over the place from shopping centres and arcades near to the Forest Gate area to places as far away as Ireland. Each sighting was followed up but led to a dead end and with each one that came in it made it that much harder to charge Barton with the murder that police were privately so sure that he was guilty of. They still believed firmly that Keely had been abducted and if she wasn't dead then she was being held somewhere, locked in or tied up. She would have undoubtedly contacted her mother further than a single letter at least by now or would have gotten in touch with police hunting for her had she been able to, surely having to have known about the widespread hunt for her. The fear that police had was that she'd been abandoned but trapped somewhere and she was now slowly dying of hunger or thirst which served to intensify their efforts to find her but it brought a more prominent and increased fear as each day passed with no Keeley. By mid-October, with still no clue as to where Keeley was lawyers acting on behalf of the Department of Public Prosecutions who'd studied the case over the two months that Barton had been held on remand came to a decision by the 23rd of october 1985 despite no irrefutable evidence either way that keely was alive or dead ronald barton was charged with a murder a trial date was scheduled and barton's trial was due to begin at london's old bailey in february 1986 but barton's defense lawyers spearheaded by henry grunwald qc managed to get the case adjourned for eight months They argued successfully that it would be a horrendous miscarriage of justice if Barton were to be tried and convicted of the murder of a girl who was alive and well, as the many sightings of Keeley that had been reported since she'd vanished would suggest. The adjournment gave Barton's defence counsel a substantial period of time to investigate the validity of these sightings with a view to getting the case dismissed, which got underway. During the period of adjournment, Two events took place that were to firstly strengthen the case for the defence, but then to assist the prosecution. In August 1986, after almost a year had passed since Keeley had disappeared that Saturday morning, a teacher from her junior school, Linda Jackson, who taught Keeley for several years, came forward to report that she'd seen the missing girl browsing market stalls at Walthamstow Market the day before. Linda had a son Lee with her at the time of the sighting and he also knew Keeley having been in the same class as her throughout several years of schooling at the time of the sighting both were convinced that they'd seen Keeley in the company of an older red haired woman who she was shopping with Linda Jackson was convinced it was the missing girl and told police she was shopping looking at clothing and jewellery stalls and seemed to be quite happy not distressed in any way she was with a woman with red hair aged about 40 i had a good look at her face for several seconds and the likeness was definitely there linda's son lee wasn't as sure as his mother was about the sighting but he told detectives the girl looked just like keely i can't be 100% certain it was her but if the girl was someone else then she looks just like keely So with two reliable witnesses who knew her certainly well enough to recognise her, this sighting was taken very seriously, and the news brought mixed feelings for investigating officers. If the Jacksons were correct in what they'd seen, then Keeley was alive and well, and that was the best result that anybody could wish for. But, in the eyes of the law, it would mean that an innocent man, at least innocent of abduction and suspected murder anyway, had spent a year of his life remanded in custody, awaiting trial over a crime that had never actually occurred in the first place. So every effort was made to authenticate the sighting. Appeals for the girl who'd been sighted in Walthamstow to come forward were made, but were unsuccessful, and police were left to consider that if it was Keeley, then perhaps she didn't wish to be found, and the sight of several uniformed officers may make the missing girl go even more underground so they tried another tack. In a sizeable operation, a team of plainclothes officers took Linda and her son back to Walthamstow Market day after day, hoping that they would once again spot the girl, but despite all of these efforts and the publicity, the girl that the Jacksons had seen was never found. The lengths that police had gone to checking out sightings that may have been Keeley served in great favour to the defence, because it suggested real doubts about how convinced police were that Keeley had indeed actually been murdered but as I said the case for the prosecution was also to be helped because two new witnesses were about to come forward two remand prisoners who were both awaiting trial for separate offences and who had befriended Barton during the period that he'd spent on remand approached staff at Brixton Prison and requested a consultation with detectives leading the hunt for Keeley Normally a code of ethics exists within the prison criminal hierarchy. We've all seen the films and you know what I'm going on about. It's part of the reason that Rule 43 exists, segregation. Informers are usually in no way tolerated and those who do can expect complete exclusion or possibly even violent retribution from the rest of the prison population. But as I said there exist several ethics and codes within this hierarchy and another one that exists is that the majority of prisoners do not and will not tolerate or abide any sexual offences or certainly any offences against children. They have an almost universal revulsion in prison. Because of what Barton had told them they decided to come forward to tell police what they knew. So that's saying something. One of them by all accounts a mid to senior figure in the London underworld and certainly a person with some sway came forward to report how Barton had asked him to exercise his influence among other underworld figures and for a price to arrange a plausible alibi for Barton covering the time period that Keely had vanished in. So it's suggestive certainly that isn't it but it's not necessarily damning. But the second prisoner sickened at what he'd heard did have a much more damning story to tell according to the second prisoner's account ronald barton had confessed to him to murdering keely barton specifics were not given but barton had claimed that keely's body had been hidden in the boot of one of his blue peugeot cars which was subsequently put through a crusher at a breaker's yard that saturday afternoon according to the account police were now hearing Barton had stood and watched as the car had been placed into the crusher and had remained watching it until it had been cubed into a block of steel by the powerful hydraulic crusher jaws. Barton told him almost boastfully I paid a mate of mine in the scrap business 50 quid to do it. When that block is smelted down her body will come to the top of it as dross. There will be no other trace whatsoever. He was seemingly worried that it could be possibly traced to him though because he was alleged to have further said I will be in the shit if they find the body. The only way I can get out of it is to plead diminished or do a runner. It was a compelling story and one that tied in with a scenario police had already considered in the investigation but there were no clinching details. There was no exact address of the scrapyard and if this was what had happened then any chances of recovering Keeley's body were slim to remote indeed. It wasn't reported if Barton was ever attacked as a result of his boasts, but it's a fair assumption that he would have been a marked man going about saying stuff like that. You can only hope so anyway, can't you? His indifference to Keeley's life, his callousness and his boasting, sickened the other prisoners, who gave him the wide berth that he deserved following this, and ultimately took what they heard to police. The search of breakers yards with crusher facilities began, but the vehicle was never found. Ronald Barton finally went on trial accused of the abduction and murder of Keeley Barton at Court No. 1 of London's Old Bailey on the eighth of October 1986, where he entered a plea of not guilty before Mr Justice Turner. Opening the case for the Crown, prosecuting counsel Mr Michael Worsley QC told the jury There is no body in this case, and this is quite unusual, but when Ronald Barton killed his stepdaughter and got rid of her body, he did so under the misapprehension that there could be no murder charge without a corpse. Details of Keeley's last known movements and each step and development in the hunt for her were then outlined to the court, with the contents of each letter received from Keeley read out to the jury. When they'd heard the contents of each letter, Mr Worsley said, If those were letters written by a girl free to tell the truth, she was confessing to telling lies, she was staying with friends and hadn't been abducted or killed. But if the defendant forced the girl he had abducted to write them, then they are very sinister indeed. Mr. Worsley then went on to tell the jury the reasons why Barton had wanted Keeley dead, saying, He had two powerful motives for getting rid of her. The first was to stop her making allegations of sexual abuse against him, the latest in a series and for which he would have been sent to prison for. It seems that he had developed a passion for her. The second was revenge on her mother for taking a new lover into her life. He went further to describe the hatred that Barton held and how he'd been overheard to say, Theresia took my two sons away from me when she kicked me out, so I took her girl.'" Now she can suffer. I hate her. She ruined my life. You can almost feel the venom in those words, can't you? Theresia Barton gave evidence against her estranged husband during the trial, breaking down with emotion as she described the previous abuse Barton had subjected the family to, and how he had threatened to put Keeley ten feet under if she didn't retract the latest sexual abuse allegations that she was ready to make against him. Theresia told the court four days before Keeley disappeared he told me to make sure that Keeley dropped all the charges against him he told me that he had a gun and he was going to take someone with him I asked if he meant he would kill Keeley and he just laughed and said dead people don't talk the two prisoners who'd come forward to investigators were also to give evidence and each gave the account that they'd told police again to the packed court Barton himself was to furiously deny the claims of each when he came to testify on his own behalf. He passionately accused each one of them of lying and he denied that he'd harmed Keeley in any way and was certainly not responsible for her disappearance. He denied that when arrested he had claimed to know where she was and could get her released if he himself was released from custody and he claimed that any sexual allegations ever made against him by Keeley or her mother were each time a complete fabrication. The alibi that he gave for the time of Keeley's disappearance was that he'd been brooding about his circumstances and feeling the need to be amongst a crowd of people had headed up to Buckingham Palace to watch the 45 minute changing of the guard ceremony following this Barton had wandered around London aimlessly by himself for the rest of the day before turning up at his parents house at around midnight when he was cross-examined about this by Mr Worsley doubt was cast on Barton's unlikely alibi when he was asked a simple question He was shown to be unaware of any football fans in the capital that afternoon, when central London was teaming with Everton and Manchester United fans that day, who were down to watch the two teams compete at Wembley in the charity shield match, which United lost 2-0 by the way. The Fergie era was yet to come. The defence argument was simply based around the fact that there was no body, no discernible crime scene or forensic evidence, and no murder weapon. This all led to the fact that Keeley was not actually dead, the evidence to suggest that she was was slim at best, and the idea that she was dead was hampered by the 20 or so witnesses who'd come forward to report sightings of her since she'd been reported missing. Linda jackson and his son lee were both called as witnesses to testify as to their sighting of keely at walthamstow market as were two other witnesses produced by the defense who claimed to have seen keely in the forest gate area and at london's victoria station in his closing speech for the defense mr robin gray qc pressed upon these and warned the jury that conviction would possibly cause a terrible miscarriage of justice telling them thank heavens we are not in the days of capital punishment where this man could hang if you convict him and then keely turns up alive and well there is a very real possibility that keely is alive that she's well and that she is in fact happier than ever before on the 29th of october 1986 the jury retired to consider their verdict it was the following day after overnight deliberations in a hotel that they filtered back into court number one to deliver their verdict. Guilty of kidnap and guilty of murder by a 10-2 to 2 majority verdict. Ronald William Barton groaned and collapsed in the dock when the verdict was read out, and after being given time to compose himself, Mr Justice Turner passed sentence upon him, telling him, I am satisfied that you for many years abused a girl who should have been entitled to regard you as her father. You started to gratify your unnatural desires when that girl was only 8 years old. You not only debased Kaylee, but you were prepared to commit the ultimate crime of murder against that poor girl, in an effort to avoid the punishment that awaited you. There is no question that you are an evil, cynical and depraved man, whom society, including your wife and family, are entitled to be, and will be protected from, for many years. Barton was then sentenced to life imprisonment to serve a minimum of 25 years. As he was taken down, Theresia Barton screamed at him from the public gallery, I hope you rot, you bastard. Following the verdict, outside the court Theresia spoke openly of the nightmare existence of life with him, breaking down and sobbing as she did so. She said, he was a bastard to us all of the time. Keeley lived in fear of him. Her life was a misery. He forced her to do disgusting things with him many times when I was not there. And the first time I reported it to the police, he was taken to court and given a suspended sentence. But when I reported subsequent incidents to the police, he threatened to kill me if I went ahead. One night he flew into a rage, grabbed Keeley, and pressed a powerful two air gun against her head. He said that he would shoot her and me both unless we withdrew the charges against him. There are just no words to describe him. He's pure evil. At least he's been put away for the rest of his life but we still live in misery because we do not know where she is and we cannot give her a decent burial. So, although the gamble that police had undertaken, charging Barton with murder on basis of the rare but not unheard of murder without a body, although that had paid off, it was a bittersweet victory. A dangerous sexual predator was now off the streets and locked away for the best remaining years of his life, but a 14-year-old girl still lay somewhere, murdered, alone and undiscovered. And it now looked as though the monster who was responsible, the one person who could reveal the whole truth of what had happened to Keeley and where she was, would take the secret to his grave with him. It would be the ultimate way to still exert control. But less than 24 hours after Barton had begun his life sentence at Wormwood Scrubs Prison in the Shepherd's Bush area of London, he made a request to see the Governor. The Governor was unavailable but the Assistant Governor did grant him an audience. Barton then handed him a portrait sketch of Keeley that he'd drawn whilst on remand and told him to get Superintendent Farquhar and Detective Inspector McNamara saying I want to clear up this Keeley business once and for all. When the senior officers arrived to see Barton he admitted that Keeley's body had been hidden rather than disposed of through a car crusher. Barton claimed that he'd left Tragic Keeley in Abney Park Cemetery in Stoke Newington, a sprawling 32-acre site that was heavily overgrown at the time and isn't much different today. Despite being told that it could take weeks to search completely without an area of the cemetery to begin searching, to the end, still trying to maintain at least some degree of control, Barton completely refused to be any more specific about exactly where he'd left Keeley's body in the cemetery. It couldn't even be ascertained if he was telling the truth or not, or he was actually enjoying some sort of sick thrill of watching police waste their time chasing shadows. Which he could very well be, I mean, where would you even start to look in 32 acres of undergrowth? yet police were duty bound to try and both detectives wanted nothing more than to find tragic keely and bring her home to her family so the day after barton had summoned police to the scrubs as many police officers and cadets that could be spared descended on abney park cemetery and began searching for the missing schoolgirl, based upon barton's admission For several days the site was combed and undergrowth was cut back mausoleums were looked into and resealed and disturbed plots of earth were examined Abney Park had probably never been so cleared in many years but yet no trace of Keeley was found and it began to look like Barton was indeed spinning police a yarn and enjoying watching them waste time and effort in a fruitless search On what was decided to be the final day of the search, by this time convinced that this was yet another of one of Barton's twisted lies, a young female police cadet lifted some undergrowth in a remote corner of the cemetery and discovered a skirt, a cardigan and a discarded piece of shoe underneath. With the area carefully sealed off, further excavations revealed the sad remains of a decomposed body nearby to the artefacts. On one of the fingers of the skeleton was a cheap, fake Mexican-style ring. Keeley always wore the same ring. The body was removed to the local mortuary, where examining pathologist Dr. Peter Venesis was able to sadly confirm that the remains were indeed that of the missing Keeley Barton. He was also able to determine that Keeley had been stabbed to death, but had put up a spirited fight against a killer six defensive wounds were still discernible around the area of Keeley's left hand and forearm, showing where she'd tried to ward off the murderous attack. However, this spirited defence was still not enough to overcome the five ultimately fatal stab wounds to the chest that she'd received from her own stepfather, Ronald Barton. Where exactly the murder had happened cannot be established as Barton has never revealed anything further about the crime, and why exactly he volunteered the information about where Keeley's body lay is unclear. Was it a last minute fit of remorse, an attempt to draw attention to his cleverness, even though he was the wrong end of a life sentence, or perhaps he'd had time to think about things and it was for his own self-interests? I'm inclined myself to think that it was either the middle or the latter option. I certainly don't think it was in any way remorseful. Undoubtedly, Barton would still want to have at least one card to play being the controlling predator that he was. And by doing so, perhaps he thought that an admission such as this would start him off in the good graces of prison authorities. I mean, as a convicted child molester and sex killer... Barton would undoubtedly rely upon the protection and cooperation of prison officers throughout his prison sentence Tragic Keely Barton, the pretty blonde schoolgirl who enjoyed netball, loved a dog and loved Five Star and who'd done absolutely nothing to warrant her murder except stand up to her monstrous stepfather after years of sexual abuse at his hands hands that she ultimately died at in a twisted act of contempt for her mother, was finally laid to rest in an emotional unpacked packed funeral on the 25th of February 1987 at Manor Park Cemetery in Forest Gate, just a few hundred yards from the home where she'd spent most of her life. At the 10-minute inquest into her death, which was held a week before, Coroner Douglas Chambers recorded a verdict of unlawful killing and said, I hope now that the proper interment of her remains can go ahead that most of the bitterness will go out of the situation and the family can begin to move on. One can only hope that they did manage to eventually however hard it must have been. I came across one report whilst researching the episode that reported Barton requested one final interview with Detective Superintendent Farquhar on the Christmas Eve of 1987 just over completion of his first full year of his life sentence. Apparently Farquhar had been told that Barton had an urgent need to talk to him, so he went along to the scrubs, perhaps expecting a full and frank confession to the murder of Keeley Barton, or perhaps even him admitting to some other crime. I mean, it's not a massive stretch to think that a monster such as Barton may have been responsible for others, is it? That Christmas Eve stood in the visiting area of the Scrubs where Barton was still being held at the time and as the door opened, Ronald Barton was brought in to see him. Barton walked straight up to the officer, looked him hard in the eye with the most menacing, contempt-filled stare that he could muster for several long seconds and then slowly and clearly said just two words to the officer Fuck you Barton then turned and walked away to be taken back to his cell. He had nothing whatsoever to offer, he'd simply got the police officer there because he wished to express his contempt for him at the person he blamed for his conviction and when better to do it than on Christmas Eve to ruin somebody's Christmas. This is the kind of monster that we are talking about here and Barton was classed as a monster because his crime was deemed so sickening that in 1995 he was one of 11 prisoners, along with some of the most infamous in British criminal history, I'm talking the likes of the Black Panther and Ian Brady, and some that we've met on the show already in past episodes, such as Victor Castigador, the Human Torch Killer, who were to be the subject of whole life tariffs. Barton was to appeal this however, and in 2006 he successfully had the minimum term he was to serve, set again back to 25 years meaning that he would be eligible for parole in 2010. Of course, this would be dependent on a parole board being convinced that Barton no longer posed any threat to the general public and it would be under strict life licence conditioning. The case covered in the episode this week is yet another as we choose on the show, where there is the best part of bugger all to research about it, and although it's a tragic one and a monstrously evil killer, it's relatively unknown. Barton was one of the first prisoners in the UK to be issued with a whole life tariff order, although it was overturned. And I couldn't clarify, despite researching, as to whether he is still a serving prisoner or he's now been released on life license. I mean, this is a very real possibility. 32 years have gone by since he was in prison. But personally, I think there's no place on the streets for a monster such as Barton. It's one of the most sickening and despicable crimes that I've ever come across whilst researching true crime. As you know, I'm quite vocal on the show with what I feel about sex offenders in general, as well as those who harm children, some of the most vulnerable members of society that we place such love and value upon. The crimes and sickening sexual abuse that Barton had committed against Keeley in the past were enough to sicken and anger me, but to then abduct undoubtedly rape and then brutally and horrifically murder your own stepdaughter that you're supposed to love and protect for nothing more than revenge and to protect yourself from punishment for and the retaliation that you would undoubtedly face for your crimes that's just simply monstrous there's no other word for it to have that degree of hatred for someone and to be so blinded by rage and someone standing up to you that you strike at them in the most unimaginable way possible through their child disregarding the fact that the monster that you are yourself has created the whole situation and blind to the fact that by doing so you alienate your own sons you risk the rest of your life's liberty and as though you hadn't terrorized the family enough through violence and sexual abuse i don't think hell is a real place but if it ever was i hope barton would have a special part of it reserved for him to suffer in Making a terrified girl write two letters as an alibi for him as a final act of life, with the very words that she was writing, making her surely know her fate, that's pure evil personified, and there is absolutely no way a creature such as that should ever see liberty again in any form. I've had the tale on the fridge board for a long while now and whilst I do have some slight form of a working list of cases I'm never sure of any order that they take until only I start writing and researching them in depth. I just choose them subconsciously, I really do. But I felt it was about time to tell Keeley's sad story and I'm sure you'll agree this has been a sad case to hear. We in Decent Society are supposed to protect and cherish children. Every part of someone should want to protect them from any harm whatsoever. I cannot and would never want to even try to step into the mindset of someone who could commit such horrors as Barton did. I really felt for Keely whilst researching the episode because it made me look at my own personal situation growing up and feel how lucky I've been myself. I have a stepdad he's been with my mum for many years now and I'm lucky enough to call him dad because he did the things that a dad is supposed to do with me he taught me how to drive took me for my first pint gave me advice and he's helped me out and proper looked out for me over the years the kind of things that if you're lucky a step-parent shares with you but it can go both ways of course as we've heard and Keely sadly wasn't as lucky. As I said, I couldn't ascertain if Barton was still incarcerated or not. I did find a YouTube video that suggests that he possibly is, but as no other sources can confirm this, and I like facts to be multi-corroborated, I don't know whether he is or not. He may even now be dead, and if he is still alive, he'll be 79 years old this year. If he is still breathing, then I hope through every single day of his incarceration, He's felt the amount of fear Keeley must have felt in her final moments, through each of his own waking moments. I hope that prison has been hard for him, and I hope that he rues everything that he lost, his family and his liberty, because of the monster that he chose to be. And perhaps still is. The only way I believe that he wouldn't be, is if he's dead. With a lengthy record of sexual offending such as Barton had, I mean... It stretched back for more than 25 years before he was sentenced to life imprisonment for murder, then it's possible, likely even, that he's responsible for other crimes. I'd certainly suggest that at the least there are unsolved sexual assaults from the 1960s and 70s that he's responsible for. A timeline of his movements during these periods, in between his incarcerations, and held alongside a list of unsolved sexual assaults would make for interesting and enlightening reading I am convinced of it. So what then are your thoughts on the tragic case of Keely Barton? I feel that she was somewhat let down by the courts and the care system. This was a troubled household and after a suspended sentence for interfering with her and then Barton escaping a second conviction because Keely had been threatened into not testifying it should have been red flagged that this was too dangerous a place for her. Just removing her from the situation and placing her in care surely wasn't enough should other steps and intervention have been taken. She fled home time and again because she was so unhappy at the care home but my heart proper breaks when I think that a youngster felt she had so few other options available that time and again she went back to a home where she was being abused and the cycle continued. And because the one time she really stood up to the abuse she paid for it with her life. I'm glad something like Childline is now in place and I commend the work that it does. I can't tell you enough how much I do. I just feel sad that perhaps it came a bit too late for Keeley and undoubtedly for others also. I'd love to hear your feedback about Keely's story and the best place to do so is directly in the comments thread of the link to the episode that I put in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group as soon as the episode drops. I hope that although this was a tragic case and one that proper tugged at me when I was writing it, it really did, Um, I'm I'm sure you can probably tell, that you found it an informative and a thought-provoking and memorable one, I can't say enjoyed because it somehow doesn't feel right to say that. Please remember Keeley over anything out of this episode, and if you are unfamiliar with the cause, check out the link in the show notes, and see about the work that Childline does. By all means, get in touch if you want to discuss Keeley's story. You know where I can be found by now, or if you have found the episode interesting enough, and you can't wait another week, there's a new episode for supporters released tomorrow, episode number 14, or I shall be back with the regular True Crime Enthusiast podcast next week. That's about it from me for another episode, so all that remains is for me to say that when you're finished here, please head over and check out Twisted Britain and the Unseen podcast. The links to each are with this week's show notes on my own. Otherwise, thank you guys so much for joining me today. I have been and still am your host, Paul, and I wish you all good and safe times, and I shall catch you very soon. Take care, guys!